right, let's turn back to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, we'll pick up in verse 15 this week and uh, get into the second half of the story we started last time about Naaman the Syrian. And uh, when I left off there last week, I thought that was a pretty good place to stop. I thought about it this week. I'm not sure it was because last time we left off on a high note and now we've got to go downhill a little bit. All right. So, well, that happens in the Bible if you follow it all the way through, right? You, and uh, I think it's actually a, a sin to just preach the highlights and the feel good things and then uh, leave off the parts that aren't so nice because we're charged to give out the whole counsel of God. And uh, is there's joy in the miracles. Last week we saw how this man Naaman was cleansed of his leprosy. And as far as we have any record in the scripture, he's the only person who was cleansed of leprosy between Moses' sister Miriam all the way down to when Christ started healing people of leprosy. So about 1,500 years, he's the only one. It's a wonderful miracle. And like we said last time, it's, it's actually a, a picture of how Christ comes not just to the Jew, but to the Gentile and uh, provides salvation for them. Jesus himself quoted it in that context in Luke chapter four, right? Uh, when he was, when he first introduced himself in the synagogue as the anointed one who was to save Israel and the Jews rejected him, he uh, mentioned that widow of Zarephath or Sarepta, and he mentioned this man Naaman. Uh, so there were many lepers in Israel in that day, but the only one that was healed was this Syrian man, right? So it's a very wonderful story. Now, after after uh, verse 14, where he goes down to the Jordan and he dips himself seven times, God cleanses him. And uh, his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. That's wonderful, isn't it? God, God does his miracles abundantly. If it was today, we'd have commercials on TV, you know, where they'd be bottling up water from the River Jordan to sell to all the folks who wanted to make themselves look younger, right? You know, get yourself moisturized. Nothing does it like the waters of Jordan. <laughs> and we got, and they'd show the before and after picture of Naaman so everybody could see. He didn't just go back to what his normal age would be, right? He goes back like a little child. He must have been something to look at, don't you think? And uh, then after that, we find out that he's still spiritually immature, right? <laughs> Not only that he is, but this man Gehazi, who's been Elisha's servant, is uh, even worse than Naaman was. Now, like I said last time, I, I think Naaman genuinely got saved. I think we'll see Naaman in heaven someday. I really do. It doesn't mean that he had it all sorted out yet, right? <laughs> And that's kind of an important lesson to learn in the church, isn't it? Just because a person gets saved doesn't mean that they're immediately spiritual, spiritually mature and discerning and able to handle every situation. Some of the things we're going to see Naaman do and say in this next section are a little questionable, right? <laughs> okay. You have to remember the man's background. He hasn't been raised up listening to the word of God. He probably doesn't know anything about the law of Moses much at all. All he knows is, is that he had leprosy and he's been cleansed. And I guess that's where we all start, right? <laughs> I was blind, but now I see. Yeah, that's, that's all this is, you know. And so the first thing he does in verse 15, it says, He returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, let me stop right there. We'll come to the last part of that verse 
in a minute. But uh, let me notice first how wonderful it is that he does this. He actually goes out of his way to come back up to Elisha's house. And if you remember last time, when he came to Elisha's house before, he came with an attitude of pride. He came down there and he was used to being considered a great person. He comes down to this prophet's house and Elisha doesn't even come to the door, right? He just sends his messenger out there to talk to him. I I don't guess that he and Elisha even saw each other face to face the first time that he came up there. And, you know, he's used to being treated with um, a lot of respect and he thinks that he's superior to these uh, people of Israel anyway. Remember, when he's told that he's supposed to go to the River Jordan, he thinks the rivers of uh, Damascus there in Syria would be better than these rivers in Israel. And uh, so when Elisha doesn't come to the door, he's rather upset, and his servants have to talk him actually into going down to Jordan to try it, you know, because they're pretty close by anyway. Well, his attitude has completely changed now, hasn't it? By the way, that's one of the evidences, I think, that a person has had not just a physical healing but a spiritual conversion is that your attitude changes. Now, this doesn't always happen with a leper, right? If you're familiar with the New Testament, you probably remember in Luke chapter 17 when Jesus healed 10 lepers and sends them down to the priest, you know, to go down because he had to go to the priest to be certified that you're cleansed of leprosy. And they go on their way and nine just disappear and to the best of our knowledge, they never see Jesus again. We don't know that, but it's never recorded if they do. And one out of the ten came back to fall down before him and worship him, show gratitude to him. So even among those who have physical healing, it's not always universal that they have this sense of gratitude uh, put into them. By the way, in that passage, at the end of that, Jesus told him that he was made whole because he did that. And that's kind of remarkable because just because a person is healed of leprosy, that means the disease stops. It doesn't mean that whatever damage has been done to the body from that leprosy is undone. And so I think probably with the other nine, they didn't have leprosy anymore, but they probably carried for the rest of their lives the the damage that the disease had done to them. But this one man, Jesus said, it made him whole. That is, he's restored to his previous condition, right? And Naaman, of course, has been, matter of fact, he's been made, it sounds like a little better than whole, right? I mean, probably there's a lot of people sitting here this morning that would like to have their flesh turned back to that of a little child, you know? And so he's had something remarkable done. Well, he comes back. He comes back to pay his respect to Elisha. And this time, he's very respectful. He comes back and he stands before him and he makes this confession. Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Right. Most of those people in that day thought that there were gods in every different country and and whatever God was in your country was the one you're supposed to serve. And he not only now this is this is a pretty remarkable statement, because we know even in the Old Testament, salvation came by faith rather than works. Right. That's the Bible makes it very plain in the New Testament that nobody was ever saved by their works or by keeping the law. Now. Notice this confession. He doesn't just say that the God of Israel is stronger than the God of Syria. He says there is no God in all the earth, right? (laughs) But this God in Israel. Now, he doesn't have a perfect understanding of him. He doesn't know all the New Testament revelation we do. He doesn't know all about Messiah. But he does respond to the revelation that God had given him at that time, right? And so he has believed on God. Now, 
that's, uh, that's wonderful. But what happens next is a little strange. He says at the end of the verse, Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. And what he's talking about here is a, a physical gift. Back in chapter or verse 5 of chapter 5, it says, And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. That is, when he sends Naaman down there to Israel to be healed, the king of Syria sends a, an extraordinary amount of wealth <laughs> as a reward for the healing that he expects to take place. And Naaman is a man of wealth, and he has the ability, he has this gift probably still in his hand from the king of Syria, and uh, he wants to be a blessing to Elisha, this man who has told him how to be healed. And Elisha's response is interesting, and we have to spend a little time talking about this, because it says, but he said, verse 16, but he said, as the Lord liveth, before whom I stand, I will receive none, and he urged him to take it, but he refused. This man, Elisha, will not take anything at all from Naaman because of what's been done. And uh, we have to ask ourselves the question of why, right? <laughs> why, why wouldn't he do this? Why wouldn't he just be gracious and take this? And this, this raises the whole question that, of something that is probably about one of the most uncomfortable things for a preacher to talk about. But it has to do with uh, people being paid for service they do in the work of the Lord, right? And there are some people who, on the basis of passages like this, who have had the idea over the years that uh, ministers shouldn't be paid at all, that they should do the work that they do for free. And that's not correct. That's not how it's supposed to be. We'll talk about why here in a second. It is, like I said, a very uncomfortable preacher uh, subject for a preacher to talk about, right? But, but it is in the Word of God, and and if if we don't give instruction on this, then people won't know, right? So, there is very clearly in the New Testament teaching that the church ought to support the ministry, okay? And as we'll see here in just a second, it's connected to the Old Testament, where in the tabernacle the priests were supported by the tithes and the offerings and the sacrifices that people brought in, right? When when you talk about in the Old Testament tithing, um, generally speaking, they weren't actually tithing money because, you know, they, they had a, a, an agricultural economy and they would tithe the increase of their fields, what you know, the, the grain they brought in. And what did you do with all that? Did you just, you know, drop it off and let it rot? <laughs> No, actually, and this is interesting, actually a substantial part of uh, what was tithed, and I'm not going to get into all the law concerning this this morning, but a substantial part of it, you just brought it and offered to God, and then he let you eat it anyway, <laughs> which is remarkable, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, it was used to support the priest, right? And that was a necessary thing because the priest, uh, the, to be a priest, especially early on when there were just, you know, Aaron and his sons basically were all the priests. It was very definitely a full-time job. You, you couldn't, you didn't have time to go out and make a living for yourself, right? If you were a priest, you had to be there all the time. So there had to be some system of support that was given. Now, in the New Testament, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, we deal with this subject of giving. And uh, chapter 9 especially, we deal with the subject of 
support for ministers, and Paul has to deal with this. I don't think Paul probably wanted to talk about this, but Paul was in a curious situation here, and it's a situation that comes up sometimes now. Apparently, some of the people at Corinth uh, didn't think it was appropriate for them to send a gift to Paul for the ministry he was doing, right? And uh, Paul's in a difficult position for a man to carry out the work that was assigned to the apostle Paul by God. It was a hard thing for him to hold down a job, right? (laughs) Because he's being sent all over the world by God and he's sent to this place and that place. And sometimes he has to, we find that when support's not coming into him, he, well, he'd go make tents, right? (laughs) And so that was, uh, that was his occupation. We have a debate right down to this day about whether, uh, People in the ministry ought to have jobs outside of the ministry. And there are some people who are very adamant that if you're a preacher, that should be your full-time work and that you shouldn't have any other business. And then there are people who are adamant in the other direction and said that he's got to support himself and it shouldn't be a burden to the church. And uh, very frankly, I think Paul hit on the best solution. So when the church is willing to support him, he'd go on that. And when they wouldn't, he'd make tents. <laughs> it's a very practical sort of thing to do, right? You know, because every church and every individual is in different circumstances. And, and uh, sometimes the church is able to support somebody full time. Sometimes they're not. But he deals with this in this chapter. Uh, apparently there were some who said that he should, uh, he should have to have a job and not be engaged in the labor of the ministry. But verse six, he says, this is first Corinthians nine, six. Or I only am Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. And <laughs> doth God take care for oxen? And what that means is when they would uh, thresh wheat, thresh grain, uh, what they would do is they would have their oxen walk through it to, you know, this would break the, uh, the chaff away from the wheat. And, uh, that's how they started out. Later on, they started building sleds and things like that, but they were pulled by the oxen. And it's kind of a clever way of saying it. It said, if you were making that ox go out there and tread through that all day, don't put a muzzle on him. Let him bend down and get a bite every once in a while, you know, because he's, he's working. The labor is worthy of his hire, right? A workman's worthy of his hire. And, uh, so, that's the idea. If he's laboring in this, if if a man spends time in the ministry, well, it says there in verse 13, do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? That is what we're just talking about there. The priest would uh, have their living, what they ate from tithes that came in. Uh, in most of the sacrifices, the priest had got a portion of the sacrifice to eat. And so that was how they were supported. And uh, so there in the 14th verse, it says, even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel, right? That if God has ordained a man to preach the gospel, that he should be able to live off of that. Now, as we know, that doesn't always work, right? It, you know, churches aren't always able to support that. And, and there's all different circumstances. And Paul recognized that. He says this in the next verse, but I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. And the gist of that is this, that even though Paul had a right to expect the church at Corinth to pay him, he's not going to take it if people are going to have this attitude about it or if it's going to hinder the ministry, right? And I think that's a good policy. 
the, my personal policy, and I can't speak for anybody else, but my personal policy on uh, receiving payment as a preacher, I've been preaching now for about 14 years, uh, is this, that if I preach and somebody hands me a check afterward, I take it and I don't ask any questions. And if they don't, I don't ask any questions. And you just go on and do the same either way, right? You, you, you cannot dare as a preacher to let that affect how you go about preaching, right? If, if you're really a preacher, you, you're willing to do it for free, okay? As sometimes people hand, hand you cash instead of a check. If somebody hands me cash, I put it in my wallet without counting it. Right. And that may sound like a silly thing to do, but it's all a matter of attitude, right? That it's, it's not about that. When Paul talked to the church of the Philippians, he actually, let me turn over here to Philippians chapter four and read what he said. So I don't get it. I don't get it wrong. In Philippians chapter four, uh, he mentions that this church had sent to him, even when he was in Thessalonica, they'd send him a gift to support his ministry. Verse 16 says, For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my, me- my necessity. And then he says this, Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. <laughs> well, that's a remarkable thing to say, isn't it? He says, I-, I was glad that you sent me a gift, not just for myself because I was greedy, but God will bless you for sending me this money for supporting the ministry. And that's why I do that. It, it would be possible for me as a preacher to just refuse Payment. Some preachers do. I know some preachers who won't take any payment. But the truth is, in a sense, you're robbing the church of a blessing, right? Because this is the responsibility given to the church. They're supposed to help and support the preachers. Now, if anybody begrudges it, and I'll, I'll, I'll do this. If I find out any church that, that anybody begrudges how much they're paying the preacher, whether they're paying the preacher, I'll just say, no, thank you, because it's, it's not worth it, right? To get in, you just leave it alone <laughs> and trust that God will take care of you. Uh, there have even been a couple of situations where churches, and, and let me say this, most, most churches are pretty generous. Uh, I've preached a few places where they didn't pay anything, but very few, <laughs> you know. And uh, most churches are pretty generous. And there have been a couple of cases where those very small churches, and I didn't figure they probably had a lot of offering coming in, and they paid pretty generously. And I, a couple of times I've pulled them aside and said, can you really afford this, you know? I mean, would it, would it be better if I didn't take a check today? I'm serious. Because you have to think that way if you're going to be a minister, right? It can't be about trying to uh, maximize profits. It's, it's just not like a regular job, you know, <laughs> where, where you're, you know, aggravating the boss trying to get a raise and all that sort of thing. You just, you just can't do that, right? But there is provision for God to provide for his ministers from those kinds of things. So why in the world, back here in 2 Kings chapter 5, does Elisha say, no, I won't take anything you got to give me? Well, there are a few things that come into consideration here. One is this. This man who wants to pay him actually is not of the nation of Israel. Okay, and that's, that's a factor. There is a precedent for this a little bit. Way back earlier in the scripture in, first, or in Genesis, Genesis chapter 14, when, uh, remember when Abraham had to go rescue Lot, the king of, uh, he'd been down there among Sodom and Gomorrah and those kings had come down and, then, and kidnapped him and Abraham had to chase him down and rescue him. And the king of Sodom offered Abraham a gift and he refused to take it. And his reason was he didn't want that man to say that he'd made Abraham rich, <laughs> right? 
And uh, he's a kind of a heathen man. It's, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, they have a certain reputation, right? So <laughs> Abraham doesn't want to be caught taking money from Sodom and Gomorrah. And this may be something similar here. Uh, by the way, and let me say this, this may be a little controversial. I'm in up to my neck already. I might as well go on with it. <laughs> right? so, <laughs> so we'll go ahead and finish it out. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea for the church to seek or pursue money from outside the church. And I, I know everybody's got their own convictions, and I'm, I'm not trying to tell other churches what to do, but I don't really like the idea of fundraisers in the church where you're trying to sell something to people outside the church. I, I believe the church ought to be supported from the tithes and offerings of the church. You raise the question of where does this money come from, right? I mean, one of the things that may come into consideration here is that Naaman is this man from another country. He's not just a man from another country. He is the head of their military. He's the captain of their host. And we know that at some point they have attacked Israelites. Remember that little maid? <laughs> They'd taken her captive. And Elisha may be thinking, this, this is stolen goods that you're trying to give me that you took from Israelites, right? Well, that would be a concern, wouldn't it? We've had this question come before before us once in a while as a theoretical thing or a hypothetical. People ask sometimes, what if somebody won the jackpot in the lottery and wanted to give a big gift to the church? <laughs> and I've heard a lot of preachers say, well, I'll take it. God can cleanse the money. I, I, we don't need that money. We really don't. And the headaches that come with it, right? God can take care of us without having to resort to that sort of thing. You understand what I'm saying? And I think that's part of what this man is concerned with. Part of it may be this. Uh, he may be concerned with, there, there's a commandment that's given a couple of times in the law, and I'll read just one of them here in uh, the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 and 19 says, Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. And then he says this, Thou shalt not rest judgment, thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. Elisha's a man in a position, he's not a king exactly, but he is in a position of spiritual authority as this prophet sent from God. And he doesn't want to be accused of or even maybe subject himself to playing favorites, right? He doesn't want to be a prophet for hire. Now, what we're talking about here that Naaman is offering him is not just try to help him get along through the next week or so. We're talking about a, a gift that would make Elisha a rich man, okay? I mean, if, if he gave him everything that was offered here, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold, and 10 changes of raiment, <laughs> that's enough for Elisha to go to Florida and retire on, okay? I mean, he's, he's finished now if he gets this gift, right? He can just quit prophesying. And it would be tempting, and maybe he's worried that Naaman would think this, that Elisha could just go become Naaman's personal prophet, you know? Uh, things like this happen. Go back in the book of Judges. There was a man that sort of got hired to be a private priest, you know, or a private Levite. And so maybe he's afraid of something like this. But I think the greatest thing of all is here that, as we said last time, this is a picture of salvation. And it's very important to indicate that that cannot be bought. 
right? If this was a matter of saying, Elisha, I want to support you in your ministry, that would be one thing. If it's a matter of, Elisha, I want to pay you for being healed, that's a whole different thing, isn't it? Because the fact of the matter is, as we noticed last time, and I think this is very important, although we count this among the miracles worked by Elisha, Elisha wasn't even there when the miracle happened. <laughs> he just told the man where to go and what to do. And it's very clear that this, this is done by God. This is something God done. As a matter of fact, Elisha may have thought, well, I didn't really do anything. What do I deserve to be paid for? I just told him to go down to Jordan and dip seven times. And uh, so I think that's the idea. You, you can't buy. Remember in the book of Acts chapter 8, there's a man there named Simon the sorcerer. And uh, he saw how Peter was able to lay hands on people and they'd receive the Holy Spirit. He wanted to buy the ability to do that. And uh, Peter told him, thy money perish with thee, right? Because the idea that, that you can buy the power of God or that you can put God on retainer, see, that's one of the things that worries me about some of this modern prosperity doctrine movement, some of the televangelists and stuff. They give you this idea that if you send them the money, they'll give you the healing, right? Or the miracle that you deserve. And God never works that way. The miracles, the gifts of God are all by grace. You can't buy it. Wouldn't it be awful if God put a price tag on it and a rich man like Naaman could have it, but nobody else could? Well, it would be like just about everything else in this world, wouldn't it? It, it, would, make, uh, it would make the church a miserable thing if God operated that way, wouldn't it? Thank God that he doesn't. Listen. It actually connects back earlier in this passage where uh, he had objected to going down Jordan and his servants said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? Right? He, there's something in the human heart, this sin nature we have, that wants us, wants us to do something to make us feel like we contributed to what God has given us, right? And Elisha won't permit that. He just that that can't be part of what goes on here. So he refuses to do this. Now, Naaman says, we're still seeing how Naaman is kind of spiritually immature. He says this in verse 17, shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth for thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. Now, he still doesn't seem to have quite got it out of his mind that gods belong to a particular piece of land because apparently what he wants to do is take a little bit of the dirt from Israel so that he can take it home and either build an altar of earth out of it or spread it out on the ground and make a little patch of holy ground or something like that where he can worship the God of Israel because he doesn't think he can do that in Syria. Well, that's just, that's just the ignorance of a new convert, right? And so you, you have to teach people about some of these things. But that's not such a terrible thing. But what he says next is really curious says, in this thing, the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimon, and that was the great false god of the Syrians. Everybody had their own god. This uh, the Syrian religion we don't really know a whole lot about, but from the name of this person, it basically means something like high. And this is probably their version of Baal. It's what we're talking about here, something along those lines. Anyway, it's a false god, right? 
And uh, he says, so when my master goeth into the house of Remen to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Remen, when I bow down myself in the house of Remen, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. Okay. He says, when I get home, my master, the king, is going to expect that I go down into the house of Remen and worship. And uh, he's going to lean on my hand. That apparently had been his practice to sort of force him to bow down, you know. And uh, and I, I won't be able to get out of this. And would the Lord pardon me for this is what he's asking. The Lord pardon me for bowing down even though I don't believe in Remen anymore. Now, uh, the three Hebrew children this man is not, right? <laughs> he hasn't achieved that kind of boldness, has he? Uh, to say that, remember the three Hebrew children, when Nebuchadnezzar built his image of gold, demanded that everybody bowed down. They just refused to bow on pain of death. They were ready to die. And their message to the king was, I'm paraphrasing here, but the idea was, if God wants to rescue us from this fire, he's able. And if not, that's okay too. But we're not going to bow down to your idol. And it's an incredible act of faith, isn't it? Well, Name is not quite there yet, right? He's, he's, not, he's not ready to sacrifice his life for this. So he asked, would it be all right if I'm forced to do this? Just understand, I'm not really worshiping Remen. I'm, I'm just there. We're told in the New Testament by Paul that we know the idol's nothing anyway, right? So he says, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And Elisha's answer is rather mysterious. <laughs> it says, and he said unto him, go in peace. He doesn't say that'll be all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he doesn't give him permission and say, I understand Naaman, you're in a tough spot. And you know, <laughs> if you go down there and I know you don't want to, and God will overlook it. He also doesn't say that you're going to go to hell if you do that. He just says, go in peace. Now, is it all right for Naaman to uh, go down there and bow himself to Remen in that house, even if he's forced to? No, <laughs> no. God's a jealous God, and in the end, he won't accept uh, even a pretense of worship of anything else besides himself, and he won't accept compromise. But the statement that Elisha makes right there actually as mysterious as it is it seems very vague doesn't he says just go in peace go on your journey in peace right he basically just says goodbye right it's, that's the idea of it that's, that would be the greeting that would be given the fact that his answer is so ambiguous I think is probably one of the great indications that Naaman really was saved because if he's really saved if he goes down to the house of Remen and he bows down that's not going to make him lost again right Still doesn't make it okay, right? I feel like this sometimes dealing with certain people. If they ask you if it's okay to do this or that, I just want to look at them and say, go in peace. <laughs> I can't tell you it's all right. You're not going to be lost if you do it. You're not going to go to hell over it, but it's not okay. You know, it's not the best thing you could do. And I think that's kind of the gist of what he was saying here. He's, he doesn't, he never gives this man permission to bow down to Remen. He doesn't. But he also recognizes the touch of the grace of God on this person. I think that's what we see here. So anyway, so he departed from him a little way. Now, this is where the story gets really bad. 
This, <laughs> Elisha has this servant named Gehazi. We've met him a couple of times before. He's been, he's been around the edges of some of these stories. And Gehazi is about to really make a big mistake. I said, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Behold, my master hath spared Naaman this Syrian, in not receiving at his hands that which he brought. But as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. <laughs> he says, so my master, uh, he, he didn't ask for anything, but boy, Naaman had some nice stuff there. <laughs> and uh, I think maybe we ought to get a little share of it. I don't think my master was too wise in just letting him go. So I'm going to chase after him and uh, see if I can get something from him. He says, I'll do this as the Lord liveth. Now, he's not actually uh, obeying the Lord. I think this is probably a case of using the Lord's name in vain, if you want to know the truth, because he's not doing this in obedience to God. But anyway, he, he chases after him. And uh, so Gehazi followed after Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him and said, as all well, by the way, the fact that he got down from the chariot is a mark of great respect in that culture because a man like Naaman normally would sit up on his chariot and talk down to this servant. But the fact that he gets down and speaks to him indicates that he's recognizing him as an equal, even though he's just the servant of the man of God. And he asks the natural question, right? If you, you know, if, if you are going down the road on your chariot or your wagon or whatever, and you see this man from Elisha's house running like mad to catch up with it. Your first question is going to be, is there something wrong, right? So he asks us, oh, well, maybe he for thinks he forgot something or whatever. And uh, then uh, Gehazi just makes up a lie. He said, all is well. My master hath sent me. Well, we know that didn't happen, right? Saying, behold, even now there be come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments. He says, just right after you left, you're not going to believe what happened. <laughs> just, just, just like a movie or a TV show, you let, you exited out the door on this side and they came in the other door and here they were, these two young men of the sons of the prophets and uh, they could use a little help. Why don't you give them a talent of silver? Now, this is not a big gift. Remember what was offered by the king of Syria was 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. <laughs> Clothes were very expensive back then, right? Because everything had to be made by hand. So that's great value. All he has here is a talent of silver, two changes of garments. And uh, he probably figures, I better not push this too far or it won't sound believable, right? <laughs> I can't say because we got these two men come down here, we need the whole thing. We need the 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold. But I could probably get away with a talent of silver and two changes of garments. Talent of silver is a lot of silver. It's very difficult to uh, judge exactly how much a talent is. A lot of these old measurements, we don't really know for sure what they are. I've seen estimates anywhere from 50 to 150 pounds. Well, either way, that's a lot of silver, right? And uh, probably, actually, there's, there's some indication that it may be that what a talent was, how they sort of gauge it, was it was about the weight that you could expect one man, one slave or servant to be able to carry. And so that makes sense, something about that weight range, right? So anyway, uh, Naaman said, be content, take two talents. Now, I don't know if Gehazi was smart enough to figure this out, but it sort of makes sense. If you got two sons of the prophets, he asked for one talent, figures Naaman had 10. He's just going to say, well, let me give each one of them a talent, right? Two talents instead of one and uh, two changes of garments. Laid them upon two of his servants and they bear him before, bear them before him. 
And uh, so they've got these two talents in two bags, right? A bag for each of these fictional sons of the prophets that don't actually exist, right? And uh, when he came to the tower, he took them from their hand and bestowed them in the house. And the word that's translated bestowed has the uh, overtone of hid, right? <laughs> right? That when he bestowed them, he hid them. And uh, he let the men go and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. Now, apparently he's done this as quick as he can. They don't seem to have got very far away, right? They're just right down the road. So he runs down there real quick, gets this silver, hides it in the house, comes back in there and stands before Elisha just like nothing's happened, right? <laughs> just perfectly innocent, you know, standing there, just kind of looking out the window and whistling, something like that, right? Pretending like he hasn't even gone anywhere. And Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And you know, it's funny how sin begets sin. Or as the old saying says, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. (laughs) One lie begets another, doesn't it? That's why it's better just to be honest all the time, because when you start telling lies, you have to start telling more lies to cover up the previous lies. He told that lie that his servant said him, which wasn't true, and now Elisha said, where did you go? And he said, thy servant went nowhere. He said, I've been here all the time, Elisha. Now, he may thought have thought he could fool Elisha because, um, like we've said before, there's, there's some indication that Elisha may have been a fairly elderly man by this time. Maybe even his eyesight's not that good anymore. And maybe he thought he could confuse him, but the thing he's forgotten this will be a theme we'll come back to in the next chapter, is that Elisha has revelations from God. He's a prophet, right? So in verse 26, he said unto him, went not mine heart with thee when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? He said, I wasn't there in body, but my heart went with thee. The Lord showed me what you did, Gehazi. And he says this, is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants. Now, the first thing about this, you may be asking yourself, what what's he talking about? Olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen, men servants, maid servants. All he got was money and garments, right? Well, I think what's indicated here is that God had given Elisha such a clear revelation that he not only knew what Gehazi had done, he even knew what Gehazi was dreaming of doing with that money, right? Gehazi probably has it in his mind. I've got a little money now. I can buy a piece of land. I can get myself a vineyard. I can get myself some livestock. I can get some servants. I don't have to be a servant of a prophet anymore. I can make my living. I can use this talent of silver, two talents of silver. I can start myself a little business and make something for myself in this world. The problem is it doesn't change. We're not even told exactly here, like I said, exactly why. Elisha wouldn't take this gift. We've got some reasons to speculate, but whatever was good enough for Elisha should have been good enough for his servant too, shouldn't it? If Elisha realized that this money was unacceptable, Gehazi should have refused it too. So he says, is it a time to do this? And he's got, first of all, he's got the sin of accepting this payment, which whatever the real reason was, has has been indicated by Elisha that they weren't supposed to receive this payment. Then he's lied twice, right? He's obviously guilty because he's been hiding this money. It seems like he's got covetousness in his heart for something that the Lord hasn't put in his hand to have. 
And uh, so he's committed actually a great sin here. And verse 27, this is the final verse of this chapter. The punishment that, Na- that uh, Gehazi receives is, is uh, the leprosy that Naaman had been cleansed of. He says, the leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. And there's kind of a fittingness in that. He says, you want Naaman's money? You can have his leprosy too. <laughs> if you want his ill-gotten gains, if that, was, if that was part of the reason why they objected to this, that this may have been money that Naaman had taken even from Israelites, he said, if you want that, well, you can have his leprosy too. And the leprosy that was taken away from Naaman was put on this man Gehazi. He said it would cleave unto him and to his seed forever. We don't really find out anything about his seed. It's very likely that he maybe never had any children if, if he was a leper, right? So this may have ended with him, actually. But he gets a permanent case of leprosy. And like we said before, between the time of Miriam and the time of Christ, nobody was ever healed of leprosy. He has this as a permanent thing upon his life. And he died with this condition, evidently. So there's a great moral lesson there about uh, straight dealing, honesty. It's just, this is just good meat and potatoes morality, really, isn't it? <laughs> Fair dealing, being honest with God, and telling the truth. Uh, so this is, this is kind of the message of this story. Now, it's interesting that this is not actually the last we hear of Gehazi. And uh, I mentioned before that in this section here, where we're dealing with what I call the acts of Elisha, it's not entirely clear that everything's in chronological order, <laughs> right? But we find Gehazi shows up again in chapter 8. And the king actually asked Gehazi to recite all the great works that Elisha hath done, and he starts to do that. So maybe even in his leprosy, his physical condition, uh, he was granted by God a sort of a spiritual homecoming. I hope so, don't you? Well, God's a God of second chances, isn't he? Yeah. I thank God for that. I, I, I think always when I mention that of old John Mark in the New Testament, remember he was the one who abandoned Paul during their missionary journey and uh, Paul refused to go anywhere with him again after that. There was a contention actually between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him on the next journey and Paul wouldn't. He refused to have anything to do with the young man, but... If you read 2 Timothy before he died, uh, he asked for John Mark to come to him because he said he's profitable to, be, to me for the ministry. <laughs> and there's a lot left unsaid in between those two passages. We don't know what happened, but somehow or other, John Mark got straightened out and he was profitable to Paul for the ministry. Well, maybe something like that happened with Gehazi. Uh, we have a servant here in chapter 6 that we'll see, Lord willing, next time. He's not named, but it may well have been Gehazi. Sometimes we assume maybe it was. We'll see that next time. And if it is the case, he is given the privilege to see something very remarkable. He's going to see the protection and the provision of God upon his people like very few people have ever ever seen it. So we'll get into that uh, sixth chapter next time, Lord willing.